You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. Looks like we still have a few people trickling in, but we'll go ahead and get this kicked off. So first of all, welcome to our 2021 Access Conference. We're really excited to be back this year. Still virtual, looks a little bit different. We're certainly looking forward to seeing people back in person in Charlotte soon. But in the meantime, this virtual platform has really given us a huge opportunity to welcome attendees from around the world and even our keynote this year. So speaking of, our keynote this year is going to be Leroy Davis, who's a founding partner at Seven Mile, facilitating a fireside chat with Richard Davis, who's the Assistant Director for Science and Exploration, Science Mission Directorate at NASA Headquarters in Washington, D.C. Richard is an accomplished aerospace engineer and has held numerous positions, including Lead Computer and Navigator Instructor, Lead Rendezvous Instructor, Deputy Director of Operations and Director of Training Operations, Russia, where he was responsible for working on the training, logistics, PAO, and personal needs of long-duration mission and international space station crew members assigned to Star City. He also served as ISS Capcom Flight Controller and Group Lead for International Crew Training Integration, where he used his extensive experience to manage flight control, coordination with onboard crew, flight planning, development of integrated procedures and flight rules, as well as coordination with external organizations to negotiate policies and agreements amongst spacecraft communicators for the International Space Station. In 2012, Rick began as an analyst in the Office of Strategy Formulation, Office of the Administration at NASA headquarters, where he was involved in the efforts to formulate and support decisions facing the NASA administrator across NASA's institutional and programmatic portfolio. His duties there included the development, advocacy, and implementation of agency strategic planning efforts and guidance in the formulation and development of agency missions. Currently, Rick serves as the Assistant Director for Science and Exploration, Science Mission Directorate at NASA Headquarters. His work in this role entails significant integration across all mission directorates and offices involved in Mars exploration. This is a dynamic role that includes responsibilities from co-leading the Mars Human Landing Site Study to serving on the organizing committee for Humans to Mars Summit and achieving Mars workshops, as well as public outreach. Rick is also fluent in three languages, including English, Spanish, and Russian, and has earned numerous accomplishments and awards. Rick is also an instrument-rated pilot with 600 hours plus of flight experience. Outside of that, he still finds time to enjoy being outdoors, modern art, photography, music, and travel. That is quite the introduction, and I really look forward to you guys learning more both about his background and the future work he's planning to do on the Mission to Mars program. One tiny note of housekeeping before we get started, we are going to keep this very interactive, so we'll keep the questions up throughout. So if anyone wants to jump in and ask questions, don't feel like you need to wait until the end of this. Feel free to jump right in, and we'll try to get to them just as quickly as we can. So with that, I'll go ahead and kick it over to Leroy Davis who can get us started. Thank you, Ariel. Rick's background is a mouthful. He's been a busy guy for a long time, so I've really been looking forward to this conversation. It is a pleasure, and I'm proud to say that Rick is my cousin and a friend, so um, so there's that. As Ariel referred to in his bio, he's had an esteemed career 
with NASA and is playing an integral role in our effort to explore Mars. So we felt like it was a great opportunity to talk about that, which should interest all of us. Plus, since we're a technology-focused investment bank, some of the technology aspects of that effort. So today, I intend to speak with Rick about his background, how he became interested in space exploration, the overall status of the Mars project, the technology roadmap that we need to fulfill to get there. And then since we do have a lot of private equity investors at the conference, Rick's views on private equity and just the commercial involvement just in general in connection with the space exploration and how NASA and the government partners with them and what role that plays, which is particularly timely since earlier this morning, William Shatner, otherwise known as Captain Kirk, ascended the Carmen line over West Texas in a, a commercial or private, along with a privately owned company, Jet Bezos' Blue Origin. So that's a timely topic. And then last, yes, aliens cannot let him get off the line without some questions on that. So so to kick it off, I'll start with a quote from Ray Bradbury's Martian Chronicles, one of my all-time favorite and definitely my favorite science fiction author. It is good to renew one's wonder. Space travel has again made children of us all. Rick, you grew up outside of Charlottesville on a farm in a place called Happy Creek in Gordonsville, Virginia. <laughs> At what point... Did you become interested in our efforts to travel to Mars and just space exploration in general? First of all, thank you all so much for the opportunity to come speak with you all today. This is wonderful. And I think everyone in this community is going to be a driving force or in time in opening up space. And we saw that this morning with the launch of the Blue Origin crew, including Captain Kirk. And it's great to talk with you all. And I would say that if you have questions along the way, I'd really encourage you to ask too, because that makes it more like a conversation. So to answer your question, I grew up on a farm way far away from any city and the night skies were dark as anything. And you could just see star fields like you wouldn't believe. And I would remember walking outside and seeing them and I was just totally drawn to that. And it's actually kind of cool for me today that William Shatner launched because uh, as a small kid, I remember watching those shows and that totally jazzed me. My four sisters had to suffer through me watching rerun after rerun after rerun. And that really set the bug to be really blunt. Yeah, I lucked out and ended up you know, meeting a bunch of people along the way that gave me, uh, first of all, an internship uh, and a co-op slot at NASA Johnson Space Center. And it just kind of went from there. But it started on the farm and it started with that Star Trek to be really um, succinct about it. I think you started out when you um, went to college, if I'm not incorrect, as a history major. Is that right? Yes. I started out, actually, I went to high school and I loved history and I loved math and science. Unfortunately, I got viral pneumonia and almost did it. And I lost months of school time and I really missed some very basic altitude and trig. Um, and so when I got to college, I struggled with calculus the first time around. And I said, I love history. And so I studied how frontiers impact societies and why, particularly in American culture, we need frontiers like going into space or even going all the way out to Mars. And I love that stuff. And then I wanted to get more and more involved with it. Uh, we started doing educational programs for kids. And the first astronaut that volunteered to do it in the state of Virginia was a guy named Jack Schmidt. He was one of the last two people to walk on the moon. And he just volunteered to come down and we'd hit seven schools. We had a great newspaper chain in Charlottesville that provided a helicopter. 
And I will tell you that when I saw we were returning to Charlottesville in a chopper and Jack was looking at the moon rising and you could just see in his eyes that that was incredible. And I knew that I really wanted to get involved more so than I was. And the only way to do that was to go back to school. So I ended up getting a bachelor's in aerospace engineering and ultimately ended up getting a master's in aerospace engineering. And when I was doing the bachelor's, I actually started working at the Johnson Center in training crews, uh, space shuttle crews, uh, how to use different parts of the space shuttle. And there's a great question about the Matt Damon movie, The Martian. And the answer to that question is it is incredibly realistic, except for the part where the antenna gores him because there's the wind would never do that. But in general, we worked really closely with the, both the author and the director to really make that as realistic as possible. And so that's a fun question. So thank you. Anyway, Leroy, back over to you. Cool. Well, the connection with you on history major to then like kind of exploration, that's kind of a fun thing, right? Because it's obvious like the frontier, exploring the West, et cetera, and so forth. And I don't recall if in my preparation for this, it was actually something you had said or just something I'd read separately about this notion of Lewis and Clark and some of the themes around that exploration around how do you travel a distance like that and this concept of travel light and live off the land. And it seems like one of the dilemmas with the Mars exploration in particular is just, hey, you can only lift so much stuff and propel it to get it there. So you got to be very choosy about what you take. So it's great to take as little as possible and figure out what you can use in the Mars environment. And further, you just want to create a sustainable environment in Mars. So how do you think about that topic? Like, what are some of the things that now we got to take these things and other things we can utilize that are going to be on Mars and then further the sustainability topic on Mars? I love that question, Leroy, because I actually studied Lewis and Clark and they're like some of my heroes. It's interesting because the Lewis and Clark expedition from the time they left out to the time they returned was about a three-year mission, roughly speaking. And what's cool is that Martian missions, the minute you burn the engines to go to Mars and go all the way out and get back with the way the planets line up, it ends up being about a three-year mission. And so there are a lot of lessons that Lewis and Clark brought to bear. And the biggest one is the one you're talking about, which is they lived off the land. They did not, they carried a lot of stuff, but they knew they had to be dependent on a lot of local produce from the Indians. And they were remarkable about building those relationships. And really, that's probably what enabled them to succeed. And as we look at going to Mars, there's actually two parts of the equation because When you see the Blue Origin launch today or the SpaceX launches, the cost of getting to space is dropping dramatically. And so that increases our ability to push stuff up and to make these missions more affordable. The other thing is we absolutely have to learn to live off. So for Martian missions, it costs so much to send anything out there. The first thing we're going to go after is producing propellant for the return trip to get off the planet and to meet up with our mothership, which we often call a Mars transfer vehicle, but it's really kind of the mothership that we saw in the the Martian movie. That is going to be locally produced propellant in time. And so initially, right now, when we landed the Perseverance rover two months ago or so, one of its first experiments was producing oxygen, which has never been done off this planet like that. It was a very successful experience, very small scale, but it was a key test to actually prove that we could do it. 
Mars actually also has the frozen glaciers and oceans that are buried. And that water is wonderful. And it's not for the reason that we would think, because we've gotten really good at recycling water. The real reason is we need to produce methane. And then we have carbon in the atmosphere. And with the hydrogen in a water molecule that we can access from those ice sheets, we can actually produce methane there. And so a lot of our work is focused on figuring out how to actually access that ice, figuring out where it is exactly, uh, and then accessing it and then producing water from it so that we can ultimately produce methane. I believe will be one of the first instances of where we live off the land at Mars. Cool. And, and a lot of that, I guess, comes into site selection, just figuring out where we can land. Does that mean we got to land near a large amount of ice? Is that what that comes down to? Yeah, so at Mars, there's basically two types of water sources. There's water molecules locked up in minerals, which are basically when it had flowing water, the minerals collected uh, water within them or were made at that time. That's really not the best way now that we've about 14 years ago approximately found these massive ice sheets. And so what we're trying to do is actually really understand where they are. When we found them, we found them by, we weren't expecting them. We actually sent a radar out to Mars to look for deep aquifers. And, and then often we were completely surprised by the existence of these frozen oceans and lakes and glaciers there. And so unfortunately the radar we sent does not see the top 10 meters because of the frequency it was chosen. And so we're working to send another radar out there so that we really understand where it is because drilling in a place where you can't even send crews to go look at it is really hard. So you want to minimize how much you drill through to actually be able to access that ice and then use it. Um, and there's some really incredible science that also comes from accessing that ice that we're particularly excited about. And Jack okay. Warner has got a really cool question. About, and I could not agree with you more, Jack, that it is an incredible opportunity for kids. And that is actually not a NASA-run effort. That is a nonprofit that we work very closely with, but they have done outstanding things. And the one at the space camp there is just amazing. I have personally been there and amazed by the hardware that they have. So thank you for that comment. Yeah, thank you. So Rick, stepping back one second. For the layman, what are the big chunks of the project plan, so to speak, to get from here to Mars? And what's kind of the status of each and the overall timeline? So um, one of our team members, Jacob Levine, is on there, and we'll show you a little a slide here. And Jacob, can you go to slide six for me? And we'll just show that because that makes it easy to talk through it. Okay, so these are the big picture pieces what we have to do, and I'll try to give you a, a summary of where we are with them. So the launch vehicles, these are really key because you have to send a lot of mass, and not just the people, but all the things they need, whether it be food and everything that needs to go and there's a lot of mass that has to go out there and so the launch vehicles there this is a picture of the space launch system that nasa is developing but a key thing here that's happening to happen is that when you have spacex blue origin and all these internationals that are able to launch stuff off the earth the cost is dropping adequately and that's really opening up an opportunity space for sending going it to mars as well as a lot of other things um, and another thing that's beginning to emerge is that there's some big chunks that you really just need to send up as one piece. But as a result of the space station, we've gotten really good about assembling stuff in space. And I actually think that's kind of a next frontier right there, which is um, really taking that to the next level. So you have commercial entities and other international entities 
that are launching stuff all over the place now. And if you can send up smaller pieces and you have a way of uh, assembling or aggregating them, which we've gotten really good at, then a whole lot of other options start to become possible. The other piece you have to have is the Earth has a big honking atmosphere. And so you need to have a crew, a near-Earth crew return vehicle to handle those incredibly hot temperatures of coming in to the Earth's atmosphere. And it literally are flames going around your windows. It's quite a, a thing to actually see when they showed the videos of it. And so today's launch of the Blue Origin crew, they were not fully into space. They basically go up, touch space, and then they come down, but they didn't actually go into orbit. When you go into orbit or you're coming back from Mars, the speeds are just incredible. And so you have to have a vehicle that can handle that. The Mars transfer vehicle, that's that mothership. It was actually kind of really cool, nicely shown in the, the Martian. That's actually mostly where the people will live because as I mentioned, a mission out to Mars is about three years. And so you spend six to eight months going out there. And then you got to hang out in the Martian system for 500 days, roughly. And that could either be in orbit or on the surface or some combination thereof. And then you have six to eight months to come back. Um, and that is, uh, I fully believe that that mothership or MTV is where the crew is going to be living most of the time and it is going to be their safe haven and really understanding how to make that work for human beings that far away from the earth is really key. The good news is the International Space Station as well as previous space stations before that have taught us so much about how to do that. Another thing that's beginning to emerge is uh, solar electric cargo tugs, or you could think of them as barges in space because that's really what they are. And this is really becoming the next frontier because these are solar electric propulsion. They don't go real fast in space, but they're incredibly efficient and they are like a barge on, in the intercoastal waterway. And we really are seeing the community move more and more to that. I fully expect that we're going to see commercial entities operating those things, pushing stuff up there, even servicing commercial satellites in higher orbits, and they will literally be managing that. You have to have calm, and then you have to land at Mars. And that's what that crew and cargo lander is, and that's a pain. The problem is the Martian atmosphere, when you're standing on the surface, is like being at 135,000 feet in our atmosphere. It's The air is so thin, it's not even funny. And airplanes only go up, as you all all know, up to about 35, 40,000 feet. Problem is, it's thin enough that it doesn't slow you down. It's uh, thick enough um, that if you ignore it, you're going to burn up. And so really, the United States, until just last year, was the only nation on the entire planet that had been ever able to successfully land on Mars. China uh, has now just done it, and we fully expect the Europeans to be right behind them, and that probably the Japanese not too far behind them. It is hard, but we've learned a ton. Then you get down to the surface, and you got to have a suit. And these suits that we all see on the space station, they're big honking things. You don't want to mess with on the Mars. It, this is actually a picture from the movie The Martian. It's where we helped them. These need to be light. And the technology for that is emerging, but there are a lot of actually commercial entities that are starting to do that kind of work. And that's very exciting. You're going to have to have a habitat in the science laboratories. You don't go to another planet without having that kind of infrastructure so that you can actually not only get amazing science and exploration done, but the crew has a home that they can live in, can handle the stresses of being that far away from the earth. 
you got to have rovers because you don't go to these places to stay in one spot. You got to go there. And we fully expect that rovers and suits appear on the moon first and then carry forward. Finally, you got to get off the planet. And that's that Mars Ascent vehicle that's shown right there. And that's where we will eventually, we'll probably land those fully loaded with propellant. That's where we're going to want to be living off the land, Leroy, as you described, so that we can really drive the cost down of doing these missions. And then the other piece, which I'd mentioned, is you're going to have to have kept communications. That's sort of something we take for granted, but the planets are so far apart from that if you send a chat and they're as far apart as they are right now, it takes 22 minutes for the, hey, how's it going on a chat to go from Mars back to Earth. And then if someone happens to be watching when your chat comes in, it's going to take another 22 minutes for it to come back. And that's just the distances of the planet. So understanding how to support that communications, coming up with creative new ideas of how to do it is really key. And it's actually exciting. And then you have to actually, before you go, make sure you pick really amazing spots. And that's reconnaissance that we show over there. And we are working that extremely hard right now. But in big picture, that's kind of all the pieces. You'll see people like SpaceX, for example, which has very strong aspirations of setting up a base on Mars. They'll try to cut out some of these pieces, but in general, all they're doing is combining pieces. But these are all the big chunks you have to have in place to actually go execute one of these missions. See, there's a question here too. The space race of the 1960s gave us a lot of civilian technology advances as a benefit. Do you see the Mars missions doing the same? Absolutely. It costs so much to send anything all the way out there. It's like 220 million miles away that you are going to have to really be extremely efficient. And there is going to be a lot of trash, for example, is a total resource. You're going to probably move towards uh, containers and all that kind of stuff that can be ground up to support 3D printing. We're going to eventually need food out there or to actually have agriculture out there. Because when you send food these distances, the radiation and the long-term storage actually causes the nutrition value of the food as well as the taste. And the taste is the big one. Um, actually, probably, well, both are important. And I fully expect us to need uh, extremely efficient hydroponics to do that. You're going to want to recycle everything. You're going to be extremely energy efficient. And all that stuff will have major ramifications for the earth in terms of how we design homes, how we design a lot of the infrastructure that supports human beings, I believe. So anyway, thank you for that question. And Leroy, over to you. So um, Rick, until recently, whenever I thought about space exploration, I always thought NASA, the U.S. government, maybe Russia, maybe some other countries. I, I didn't think Blue Origin, Virgin, et cetera, et cetera. And it's pretty easy to see, to like to look at an event like today and think, oh, wow, this is cool how you can kind of easily see and with evidence that these private enterprises are somehow facilitating space exploration, which has got to be a good thing, I think. But then there also seems to be other instances where I believe I read that Blue Origin at some point got tangled up in like a court issue over landing a vehicle on the moon. And so there's some mm -hmm. regulation and things like that. So how do, you, how do you envision this dynamic playing out where, you know, we're going to Mars, we're going to Moon, whatever, where there's no country, but yet there does seem to be some regulation that I'm sure is needed. How will that dynamic play out? And could you describe that? So I think we're learning how to do it. And I would say the United States is really leading the way across the planet in that regard. And I'm really proud of our country for advancing this. Let me give you some examples. 
So the cost of the infrastructure to get into space is pretty high. And so one of the things that we did about, I'm guessing maybe 10 years ago, we needed to retire the shuttle because the shuttle was costing too much. And so we went first to uh, commercial cargo, um, and then we went to commercial crew. And so what we did is we put out a competition that said, you know, we were looking for private entities that, to actually own the transportation system, manage it, manage the risks so that they could do it. And the first thing we did was cargo. And there was a lot of resistance to that because it was a change because NASA was doing everything. But we, many in the agency realized we needed to try to do something differently. And there's been some really creative leaders in that regard in terms of moving in that direction. And we actually had a strong response. Uh, SpaceX was one of the winners and that actually gave them seed money, but they had to put skin in the game too. Everything was being paid for by the federal government. They actually had to put in investments and that allowed them to ramp up their capabilities such that they were able to eventually successfully do it. And not only that, but then they started applying economies of scale that the federal government and NASA in particular are not really set up to do. And that's actually where they start driving the cost down. And one of the most amazing things to go do is actually walk in the SpaceX factory, which I frequently have to do in Hawthorne, California and outside in LA. And it is an amazing, they are churning rocket ships around and I like McDonald hamburger lines and I'm making a little facetious, but they have really taken this to a new level where they're using 3D printing in ways that we would never have done. It's not just SpaceX, it's Blue Origin, it's all of them moving in these kinds of directions. But they're driving that cost down. The cost of access to space is actually dropping by orders of magnitude. And then that starts creating an entire set of new opportunities that are out there. So for example, when we see the Blue Origin crew launch today, that would never have happened had we not start driving the cost of launching into space. So first of all, we did cargo, then we did crew, and then we really are trying to get the agency out of the business. I fully expect that commercial communications that really the private sector is totally dominating right now in around Earth, they will be extended out to the moon and they will be extended out to Mars. And in fact, the more I think many of us think about it, the sooner we can figure out business models that work, that allow multiple entities, so you're not into a monopoly situation where you have competition working, is you will be out, you will see cargo, you will see crews being delivered commercially out to these more distant locations, and you will literally see the entire gambit of human activities moving out into this larger area. And I think that is an extremely exciting period. And it is difficult to imagine the permutations on this. So, uh, you know, if you had asked me five years ago about space tourism, I'm not sure I would have been optimistic. But then you see a launch like today and you see these costs dropping. We're going to have hotels in space with crews, you know, people being launched up there. And they may be staying for long periods of time and maybe even doing experiments, maybe doing a whole range of activities that we can't even imagine today. So I think that if we do it right, you use the federal government to essentially allow the private sector to establish a toehold and to get the sea legs or space legs, if you will, to actually get up there. And then they will just go a lot further than any of us would imagine. Now, you asked about the challenge of uh, legal infrastructures and all that kind of stuff. Those are going to be very real. And the sooner, and we're probably not going to even know what we need till we're actually up there doing that. 
but we need to be mindful that we don't want to have that legal infrastructure get ahead of where we are or get behind of where we are. And then this is also a multinational arena. In the opening of the American West and actually of South America, it was the first countries that get there that largely start to define a lot of the rules that are there. And I believe that will be the case up here. And that's a reason why I personally would love to see the United States and other Western democracies really leading the way, because I think that's going to be a critical piece for establishing this. I used to always say, too, that, you know, like on the earth, economic scale is, say, a billion or trillion dollars. But I think that when you start talking an entire solar system, at some point, our species is going to realize that you're talking much larger spheres of influence and therefore economic activity. And uh, I think it's a very exciting time to be involved with it from whatever perspective that's there. Got it. Uh, there's a question too, Leroy. Does a newly formed space factor into Mars' mission aspirations? If so, what do you see the role as? So that's unclear. We are working very closely with the Department of Defense to try to make sure that we synergize things. One of the things that I think that many of us are beginning to believe is that uh, we will introduce nuclear propulsion systems into space as soon as we can get that technology in place, because it really does two things. It's very efficient. It's in an environment where you don't have to worry about the dangers of nuclear propulsion, and it really reduces the trip time. So a trip out to Mars, for example, is three years, as I said, but with you use nuclear propulsion systems, you can drive that down to two years, maybe even less in time. And that's important because these people are living in an extremely dangerous environment. And if you can get them home a year sooner or you know, reduce that time by 33%, I would argue that your total risk has probably been reduced that much too. And having dealt with Challenger and the Columbia accident, I will tell you, you want to minimize that risk absolutely as much as possible to really uh, have the infrastructure totally understood. So thank you, yeah. Nicholas, for that question. So Rick, you're, I think, I believe you're pretty involved in the site selection aspect of Mars. What, what is the framework? Like, how do you, how do you think about that? What are the criteria? How do you try to assess where you should land? And further, I'm kind of a project manager at heart. Once you pick out where you yeah. want to go, what's the contingency planning around? Ah, we didn't land exactly where we wanted. What are some of the contingency plans around that whole topic? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Lord. I love that question. And thanks. That's from Pod. So, uh, yes, I feel really lucky to have been asked to be the co-chair for the process to you know, pick where the human base gets set up. And this is actually nothing new. When we went to the moon, we kind of, in one respect, it was incredible that we were able to do it. But one thing that probably didn't do quite right is we went to six different locations. And the challenge of that is that you don't get an opportunity to build up any infrastructure. And what we learned in Antarctic exploration, for example, is you really have the logistics, logistics, logistics make all the difference. And so in our Antarctic, they actually have the McMurdo station where the crews are, you know, they build up fuel, they build up supplies, they do all that kind of stuff. So for Martian exploration, that is actually the paradigm we are using. We are trying to pick an outstanding initial base location where we can start pre-emplacing things and where we can start building up infrastructure so that when the bad day happens, and they do happen, and we actually have options. That's one of the reasons I love the movie The Martian. They can maybe over-dramatize the problems. But bad days do happen, and the way to mitigate them is to have spare supplies, spare modules. 
And you can't do that without a base infrastructure. In terms of picking a place, we have actually had our first workshop in 2015. We're getting ready to have another one. These are literally from people all over this planet picking locations for our second planet. That's a cool concept to me. And really the thing that we're trying to do is make sure we understand the science we want to accomplish when humans go so that we can maximize what I call the return on investment. And then the secondly, we want to make sure the resources that we need are there too. And really the big resource is the one we talked about, which is water. So we are all over right now doing mapping efforts to understand that. We are getting ready to send a next generation radar out to Mars in 2028 to act with it as a multinational effort to really understand where that ice is and then to understand where the exciting uh, science is so that we can totally nail picking a spot. We do not want a Jamestown where the, basically they got flooded because if you've ever been there, they doesn't even exist anymore. They took them, I don't know, 60 years, whatever, to realize Williamsburg's a much nicer place to be <laughs> than sitting there right on, on the James River. And we will figure that, we want to avoid that for Mars. But anyway, those are some of the things I think that we're um, trying to assess right now. When do you think we'll get there? Uh, so in the short run, you think it's always run slower than you expect, medium and long term. Watch out. You start getting other things happening. I personally believe that we're going to, across this planet, we're going to have both the capabilities and the knowledge to execute this in the 30s sometime. It's not just an effort by NASA. It's not just an effort by space agencies. It had better involved a lot of commercial entities in ways that we have never done before. I'm personally working that radar mission that we're sending in 28, and it's got five space agencies working on it. It wouldn't surprise me if there are even commercial involvement at some point. It's actually a prototype for how you go do this you know, out at Mars, and I, I think we're going to figure that. And I think that in the short run, it'll look distant, but watch out. When you see the kind of technology that we saw today in that Blue Origin launch, and you start aggregating that across the planet, some amazing things become possible. We understand those technology challenges that I outlined. It's just a matter of working through them and making sure that we know how to do it. But there's no technology showstoppers to actually going out and doing this, but there is work to be done to make developing everything. Rick, someone's posted a really good question. Planning a mission to Mars is a monumental task that will likely require cooperation across hundreds of private and government entities. How do you organize the myriad of ideas, game plans, suggestions, et cetera, and how do you coordinate all those efforts to make sure everyone is on the same page and rowing in um, the same direction? I love that question. That is the hardest thing about going out to Mars. I don't worry about the technology. I've been in human space life for over 30 years, and I will tell you, I am confident about the technology. The tricky part is exactly what you're asking here, which is how do you organize these things in a creative, dynamic way that doesn't fall prey to um, what I call rules of thumb that we've developed uh, or paradigms that don't apply to these missions. So I'll give you an example of one. I spent many, many years in a mission in a flight control room in Houston, Texas. And if you had one mantra it would be in space is dangerous, on the surface is safe. And that is how people think about it. But what they don't realize is that when they say on the surface is safe, they're talking about on the surface of a planet that we have evolved on for billions of years <laughs> that is designed to create, sustain, and protect life. And when you go to Mars, that doesn't apply. That planet is actually, until we learn how to do it, is more like going up K2 or Mount Everest times a thousand, trying to kill you, until we learn how to do it right, 
we've got to be really careful that we don't fall into those idea traps there. And it's so it's not only getting a lot of different entities working together, but they have to be really creative and open to new ways of organizing ourselves and doing this so to execute this in a timely manner. Uh, International Mars Ice Map Commission that I feel fortunate enough to work with, we are seeing exactly that. There are just a lot of organizational issues that are more challenging than actually the technology of doing it. And I fully expect that to be the case, if not on steroids, for when we send human crews out there. Thank Rick, you for that wonderful question. Rick, Emily is telling me we are running up on time. I, so I got to ask you a question. So I sent you a month ago a link. That, this is the aliens question. Yeah. Uh, the commander, you know, mm-hmm. the famous commander Fravor Nimitz video, the famous Tic Tac um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> video that, that the Pentagon uh, either confirmed or released. I don't know. What gives? So... We don't know if there's, I've never seen any evidence that there's intelligent life out there or or visiting this planet. But anyone who's been thinking about space and they look at this cosmos and they realize that there are just almost an infinite number of stars and we can actually see planets around these stars now. Anyone who thinks that intelligent life only evolved on this one amazing planet would say that that is egotism times about a billion. Um, And the the probability of intelligent life there is high. Now, are they really going to want to talk to us, though? That's the real question in my mind. Because if you think about how far we've come in, say, you know, 10,000 years, and now on the universe scales where you're not talking 10,000 years, you're talking millions and billions of years. And so if an intelligent species developed even 50,000 years ahead of us or a million years ahead of us, you know, we're going to actually be like ants to them, you know, to some extent. And so if you apply humility there, right, you have to ask the question, how much do they really want to chat with us? And then right now we're limited by the speed of light. But I would remind everybody here, the speed of sound used to be viewed as a permanent physical constraint. and Now planes go past it every single day. And I suspect that our technology may figure out a way to cheat the speed of light, too. And we're already seeing hints of that in terms of objects that appear to be moving faster than the speed of light uh, out in the universe. And I suspect that we will figure out a way to communicate across these distances, which will make it easier to establish con. That's actually an incredibly exciting area that I think will be transformative in terms of the way human beings view ourselves and our role in the universe as we get smarter about this. Okay, so not not what I wanted. I wanted something juicier than that, but I'll accept it, Rick. I'll accept that. Um, so I'll, I'll close with this because I think we're out of time. Rick, some of my earliest memories were spending time on your family farm out, outside of Charlottesville. And I remember with particular fondness, your dad's metallic Airstream trailer parked next to your house and his and your whole family's wild stories of adventure and places out west like Mexico and California and places like that that seemed so far away at that time. And that seems like a blink of an eye ago. So thank you very much for the conversation today. In the words of my good friend and data science entrepreneur, Richard Gullib, onwards and upwards. <laughs> thank you for the wonderful opportunity to be with y'all. And I love these questions. I'll try to answer one of the two of these in the chat log on the side. But thank you all for the opportunity to be with you today. Thank you. 
Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 